thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your, your mercy that you have showered upon us. We thank you for your love. And we thank you, Lord, that during this time we can focus our attention upon you. And I pray, Lord, as we open up your word today that, that, you, would, that you would truly set our hearts upon what is important to you and that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. What I want to say about truth is that we live in a time that truth is viewed as subjective. It's, it's viewed in a way that where God's word is not respected as absolute truth. Uh, it isn't just a postmodern or a post-Christian idea or a thing. It happened in Jesus' time. Uh, Jesus, the incarnate word, is truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is full of grace and truth. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. But when being questioned by Pilate during, before his crucifixion, Jesus said this. He said, for this I have been born, and for this I came into the world to testify of the truth. That's what Jesus said. And then he said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now Pilate mockingly replied, what is truth? The fact is that truth is absolute and objective, but many prefer to to create a reality of their own. And their own version of reality says, well, truth is flexible. You can can bend it and you can mold it and, and change it to fit your lifestyle and your preferences. The result is a world where anything goes as long as it's right for you. If you uh, watched last night's civil forum at Saddleback with uh, Obama and McCain, that should have been very clear. Here you've got two candidates who are poles apart on many important issues. But nevertheless, absolute truth exists, and God is its author. Now, we're all affected to one degree or another by this subjective view of truth that exists today. Uh, In fact, being a follower of Jesus is sometimes misunderstood. Sometimes, some people think you can say you're a Christian and live any way you want. Uh, there's confusion about what the gospel means, about what it means. Uh, is it just information that you accept once and then go on, or is it something that is to uh, apply to every moment of every day that you follow Jesus? Uh, there's confusion about that and about what the gospel means, and therefore we don't know how to share it with a world that's in need. In fact, what we do is we retreat into a bubble of a Christian subculture where we create our own clubs and our own marketplace and our own music and we isolate from the very world that God wants us to reach with the truth of the gospel. So for the next three weeks, I want us to focus our attention on what difference it makes to live the truth, to live the gospel every day. Today we're going to look at how God seeks the lost and how therefore we must care for the lost and live the truth before them and share the truth with them. Next week we're going to look at 2 John about discerning between truth and error, about not putting out the welcome mat for false teachers in our homes, in our families, in our lives, in the church. And then in two weeks, 3 John, I'm going to be able to say that I preached through three books of the Bible this summer. Philemon, 2 John, 3 John. Uh, We're going to talk about consistency of life and how that affects our witness. 
But first, today, let's look at Luke 15. So please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. And when you find that, please stand with me. We'll read God's Word. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. This is truth. Please be seated. So Luke 15, it's dealing with the lost and the found. Lost sheep, found sheep. Lost and found coin, lost and found son. What I want us to do today is look at the context, at the story itself, uh, at the message or the point that Jesus is getting across, and then the application for our lives. So first of all, the context. The setting in which we find Jesus in Luke 15. You really have to look at the last verse of Luke 14, verse 35, where Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's telling a, a, uh, uh, some stories about discipleship. And he says, if you have ears to hear, then listen. Now you look at verse 1, and there are tax collectors and there are sinners coming near to Jesus to do just that, to listen to him. And so they're listening to Jesus. And they're the tax collectors. Tax collectors were basically agents or contract workers who collected taxes for the government during Bible times. Literally, they were tax farmers. We are a cross-country trip. You know, we drove 5,500 miles. I saw a lot of farmland. They were farming all sorts of things. Well, these tax collectors, they farmed taxes, and they collected it from the people. Now, they were, they were lower than publicans. You're probably familiar, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with tax collectors and publicans. Two different groups doing uh, similar work. Publicans were wealthy. They were usually not Jewish. Uh, they, they were contracted with the Roman government to be responsible for the taxes of a particular district uh, of the Roman state. Now, they were often backed by military force. They were powerful and they were rich. But the tax collectors, on the other hand, were employed by the publicans. And so they were not rich, uh, but they actually did the collecting of the money 
in the different areas in which they lived. Uh, These men were Jews. The tax collectors were Jews. They were not very wealthy, and they were probably familiar to the people from whom they were collecting the taxes. That's why they they weren't liked very much. Now, there was another group uh, sinners, as you got the tax collectors and the sinners, often they are lumped together in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The sinners were non-observant Jews, irreligious, uh, Jews in name only. And they were doing something good. They were listening to the truth. They were listening to Jesus. Now, the other thing that was happening at the same time, we see in verse 2. It says that both the Pharisees and the scribes two groups that are also lumped together often in the uh, Gospels. The Pharisees and the scribes, they weren't listening to Jesus. They were grumbling at Jesus. So here's what you've got. You've got these listeners that are not recorded as saying anything. They're, They're listening to Jesus. But the grumblers had plenty to say. In fact, they even quoted a truth. Here's what they said about Jesus. He receives sinners... And eats with them. That's their charge. It wasn't cool. It wasn't Jewish. He wasn't supposed to be around those kinds of people. Now, it wasn't the first time that Jesus was accused of this. But the Pharisees really thought they ran the place. The Pharisees thought they owned the place. And they were a religious and political group uh, in Palestine in New Testament times. And they were known for insisting that God's law be observed as the scribes interpret it. The way that the Pharisees spelled out uh, the meaning of the law of Moses, the way they adapted it to meet their, their own needs, to suit their own preferences, was known as the tradition of the elders. Uh, now these traditions weren't put in writing. They were passed on from scribe to scribe and then passed on to the people by the scribes. Now they claimed that if you were a Jew, you could know the way God's laws, all 613 of them as the, as the Pharisees and scribes counted, that you could know exactly how they were to be observed. And they would be very happy to tell you, which they did. Now Pharisees were very, very concerned about strictly observing every single law, all 613 of them. And so they were very careful about the Sabbath and about, about food and about divorce and about oaths and so on. But they also, they loved to look around and find the Jews that didn't observe the laws exactly the way they were supposed to observe them. So they, the, the, the Pharisees, uh, considered it their duty, their, their privilege, their right to to constrict and to to limit their contact with these Jews that were just outside the bounds, as well as the Gentiles that were completely unclean in their minds. They wouldn't even eat in the home of a non-Pharisee for fear that the food had not been kept ritually pure. And the Pharisees, as Luke 18 verse 9 tells us, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves rather than God. Now, this can easily happen when people think that their list of what you're supposed to do is the same as God's will. The Pharisees were basically hyper-religious people who missed the point and stumbled over Jesus. You can relate, can't you? 
I mean, uh, they put the emphasis in the wrong places. Minor details became major preoccupations. And they forgot the more important things like justice and faithfulness and mercy. They were too concerned about people's outward observances and what it looked like and appearances. Pharisees looked down on people like tax collectors and prostitutes. But see, religious people need to remember that they, too, are sinners in God's eyes and that Christ died for everyone. Everyone. So here's what you've got in the context. You've got irreligious people who want to hear what Jesus is saying, and then you've got religious people complaining about who Jesus wants to hang out with. So Jesus tells a series of stories to show the grumbling religious people as well as the listeners, why he seeks sinners, why he seeks the lost. So the story has three parts. The first is of a shepherd who, who is of modest means. He's not a rich man, but he loses one sheep out of a hundred. We see it in verses three through seven. Now in those days, many flocks had 200 sheep. Uh, So we know that the shepherd was not a rich man. A large flock would be 300 sheep. But his responsibility was to care for the flock. And so he leaves the 99 under the protection probably of another shepherd. And he goes and he seeks out the sheep that is lost. And he goes and he finds the sheep. Puts it on his shoulders. He brings it home, but he doesn't keep it to himself. He says to his friends, you've got to rejoice with me because my sheep which was lost has been found. And Jesus even gives a rhetorical question. What man among you wouldn't do this? He was a shepherd who was accountable to take care of his sheep. He did his job. He did his job well. So that's the first part. Now the second illustration is very similar to the first. You just have different objects. What you've got is silver coins. Silver coins. The picture involves a woman who has lost a coin, probably a drachmas, which was equal to a denarius in value, and you're probably wondering, you know, what is that worth? Well, it's worth about a half a shekel. Okay? You've got to clear that up. It wasn't much money, all right? It wasn't much money. Uh, in those days, it was an average day's wage for a worker. So it wasn't a penny, okay? But it wasn't a lot. Uh, I'm the type of person that if I see a penny on the ground, I pick it up. It's a penny. A hundred of them make a dollar, uh, recently, I picked one up while we were on our trip, and one of my kids said, Dad, it's just a dime. I said, just a dime? Well, give me all your dimes. But this lady had lost this coin, and she lights a lamp to, to see in a windowless house. And some say the coin was a part of a, of a dowry that might have been a necklace or a headdress that the coins would have been sewed into. Uh, that's not certain if that's the case. But what happens is the woman goes on a, a deliberate search for something that others may have considered of little worth. One coin. But what Jesus is emphasizing is that he is not the God of, of the few or of the wise only or of those who think that they are following him. He is a God who searches for and he finds and cares for sinners. People who need him. See, in a time when tax collectors were hated, when sinners were mocked, Jesus gives a word that encourages the rejected and the despised to come to him. Opens his arms to him. 
when other religious people of his day wouldn't have anything to do with them. Jesus hung out with them. He ate meals with them. He showered his grace upon them. See, he showed that the way to him is through repentance. And that God's arms are open wide to the person that will come to him on, on his terms. Acknowledging what they're like before God and, and, and accepting God's free offer of a transformed life. Now there's a third part of this story. It's pretty well known. And it's about why he associates with sinners. We see it in verses 11 through 32. The lost son. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son, the, the wasteful son, the squandering son. But it's really about a compassionate father. A compassionate father whose reactions to events in this story are key to everything that happens from start to finish. In terms of what happens, if you look at verse 12, the son asks for his inheritance, his share of his father's estate prematurely. Verse 12 says that a man had two sons, and uh, verse 11, a man had two sons, and verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. His father was still alive. It was like he was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, and give me your money. Give me what's going to be mine. He couldn't wait. Jewish law said that the older son would have gotten two-thirds. The younger son would have gotten a third. But I'll tell you what, This is a slap in the face to his father. It's it's an insult. He's basically saying, I don't want anything to do with my family. I just want the money. And so, amazingly, in verse 12, we see that the father grants this request. He, He lets him have the money. He lets him go his own way. Much like God who often allows us to go our own way. Verse 13, we see that the, fa- the son leaves his father in his home and he travels to a faraway land. And while he is there, he squanders his money with loose living. He wastes it. He shoots his whole wad. It's all gone. In verse 14, things get worse. A famine breaks out in the land. So here he is with no money, no food, a shortage of food, and he gets a job doing uh, the disgraceful task of feeding pigs which were unclean animals to Jews. And and he realizes something while he's slopping the hogs. I've got cousins that are hog farmers in Nebraska. They're messy. They eat trash and junk. And, and, And as he's feeding these hogs, he realizes they're eating better than I am. And then he thinks about his father. He thinks about his father's servants and he says, they're treated much better than how I'm being treated here. No one's giving me a thing. He comes to his senses. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, it says, he came to his senses and he said, well, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? And he says this in verse 18, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. He saw his sin first as against God. And then he says, I've sinned against heaven and and in your sight. I've sinned against you too, Dad. And he says, I am not worthy to be called your son. He decides to do this 
and he does it. He decides to go back to his father and to humbly ask to just be, become one of his slaves. It pictures his repentance, that he realizes that he's owed nothing and that he has made himself an outcast based upon the consequences of decisions that he has made himself of his own free will. Now, verse 20 is, is, is amazing. He gets up and he comes to his father, and while he is still a long way off, against all custom, his father runs to meet him. His compassion motivates his every action throughout this parable. The son apologizes to his father, and his father just celebrates. He just puts his arm around him and hugs him and kisses him, and he's, just, he's rejoicing because his son is back, because he was as good as dead, and now he's alive. He welcomes his son back into the home as if nothing had happened. It's a picture of God's compassionate grace, God's mercy, God's acceptance of sinners who return to him. But all is not well on the home front. See, in verse 25, the older brother, he's out in the fields working, and he he comes close to the house, and he hears music and, and dancing and celebration. And he asks one of the servants, hey, what's going on? Didn't get invited to the party? He finds out that his brother has returned. He gets angry. He gets resentful. He doesn't think it's fair. It's kind of like Jonah. God says to Jonah, you go to Nineveh. And you go there and you tell them that their sin has been so bad, I'm going to destroy them in several days. And Jonah didn't want to do that. So he went the other direction. You know what happened there. He finally comes around and, and goes to Nineveh and he tells them. He says, repent, because in three days... You're going down. <laughs> well, they repent. They, they listen to God. They, they say, we've done the wrong thing. And they, they get on their knees before God. Well, you think that Jonah would be like, yes, it worked. No, he was angry. He was angry that God would show mercy on those people. There have been times that there have been people that I have known that came to know Christ and I didn't celebrate, I was suspicious. Same thing happened to Paul when he became a believer. The church didn't believe that he really did get saved, that he really did get born again, that he really did get transformed by Jesus. Took Barnabas to come around and tell him the story. See, Jonah, he didn't want to do it. He got under a tree and he says, God, you're not good. Just kill me. Because you're, uh, you're just not good. And you know what God said? Should I not have compassion on my own? See, the son, the older son, he didn't think it was fair. And so the father explains to him that his status with him has not changed one bit. Not one iota. And the father wants him to realize that what was lost has been found. That what was dead, as good as dead, is now alive. He should be rejoicing. See, the Pharisees were just like that. See, the older son is much like the Pharisees. Outside. Not willing to come in because God showed mercy to them. He's outside grumbling. Not trusting God. Wanting to control. 
the message, the point that Jesus was making with these three stories, they're simple, but they're also life-changing. See, the first thing we see here is that what this is telling us is that God cares deeply, greatly for the lost. God cares greatly about lost people. God's all about finding the lost. They're valuable to him. They should be pursued like sheep and like coins and like sons. And lost people, God knows, are unsaved. They're headed for hell. They're without God in the world. They're without hope. And he wants to shower his mercy upon them. So they should be welcomed back upon return, not shunned. Because their return represents a recovery from spiritual death into spiritual life. And that calls for celebration. So God cares deeply about people who are lost. And the second thing that shows us is that God will go to great lengths to save people who are lost. He's in charge of the process. He's sovereign and he finds them and he rescues them. That's why Jesus came to save sinners, to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Jesus set a new precedent among Jews by accepting and associating with tax collectors. That was a dirty word. Tax collectors. He ate with them. He showered his grace upon them. He even chose a tax collector, Matthew, as one of his 12 disciples, as one of the apostles. And Jesus taught that God would welcome a repentant tax collector, a humble and repentant tax collector, and that he would turn away an arrogant Pharisee. See, his mission was to bring sinners based upon his finished work on the cross, based upon the gospel message into a relationship with God based on grace, not works. Based upon what Jesus did, not what we can do. Now the third thing is this. When someone comes to faith in Christ, there is great rejoicing in heaven. There is great rejoicing when a person comes to Jesus. The Bible even tells us here that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. There is a party going on in heaven when people come to faith in Christ. But what do you get excited about? I get excited about some weird things. Most of you already know I'm I'm a little bit weird about certain things. And a couple years ago, I was fishing on the Tennessee River at my in-laws, which I do every year when I go back there. And... uh, I caught this fishing pole. You may, remind, you may remember me talking about this. It's a Berkeley Enforcer rod. It's a, it's a Zebco reel. It's a nice little setup. And I'm fishing out there on the dock, and all of a sudden my line, I'm pulling another line in, and I, I, I grab it, and I pull in, and here it is. And uh, there's a, uh, it belongs to Mike Schaefer in Knoxville, Tennessee, so I call the number on here. There's a name on it, a number. Nobody answered. Nobody lives there. It's an old area code. So what was I to do? Come on. <laughs> I got a fish. That's my favorite fishing pole. I fish with it every time I go fishing. But this year, we're on the dock, and uh, I'm out there with, with my son, Michael, and my, my nephew, Hunter. He's seven, eight years old, and a couple of the cousins were out there. And Hunter, who's a boy, was using the Barbie, the Barbie fishing pole. They live in Nashville. They were, you know, we had to let them borrow a fishing pole. So he's using the Barbie fishing pole, and he, 
he kind of, he's exuberant, and he throws, he tries to go cast it out. Well, the fishing pole went into the water. Now, these things are supposed to float. This one didn't. It sunk to the, to the bottom. Hunter was crushed. You know, he felt so bad. I said, don't worry about it. It's a Barbie fishing pole. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, I wasn't so attached to it. Now, I'm sorry, Savannah. You are, so I should be nicer about the Barbie fishing pole right now. Uh, but here's the deal. Fast forward four days. Alexandra's out there on the dock fishing. And she casts her line out, and she starts pulling in another line. I'm like, Allie, stop, stop. Let me grab it. This is how I caught my fishing pole the other, a couple years ago. Grab it. The Barbie fishing pole. <laughs> you want to talk rejoicing? We were partying. We didn't kill the fattened calf. Um, but I believe we had barbecue that night. And um, we were so excited. It was lost. It was found. Oh. But see, God rejoices when people go from spiritual death on their way to hell and get transferred into the realm of life. See, I love the way that Jesus ends this parable. I love it. Um, the parable of the lost son is, is, is ended open and it's left open-ended. Look at the last verse, verse 32. We had to celebrate, the words of the Father, we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't tag on this thing. Now, here's what you're supposed to do. Boom, 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 boom. We want to look at it and go, well, I'll tell you exactly what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to build bridges to lost people. Now, that is one of the things we're supposed to do. That's not the primary thing here. The primary thing that Jesus was trying to get across is that he, why, he was answering why he seeks out lost people. It's because he cares for them. It's because he made them. It's because he's a holy God and they're sinful and he was going to substitute himself for the sins of the world. So he leaves it though open-ended so that the older brother and the listeners and the grumblers, everybody's left to consider what to do next. Either in the story or listening to the story. What needed to be done? They were going to have to figure that out. So what's the application for us? Jesus' application of all three stories, all three parts of this story, is that there is joy in heaven when someone comes back to God. That God cares. So there's got to be a therefore in there somewhere. There's got to be a therefore for us. It can't just be that, oh, Jesus does this. There's got to be a therefore for his followers. And here's the therefore. God cares, and there is joy in heaven when people come back to God. Therefore, his followers must share the same concern. Therefore, we must build bridges, not barriers, to people in order to share the truth of the gospel with them. You've got friends and family and coworkers and teammates and classmates that often we're burning bridges with. We get upset because they said this to me or they look like that or they act like that and I just can't hang with that. See, it starts where our heart is at. It starts right where our heart is at. See, here's the thing. Here's the application. Our attitude toward others matter. Our attitude towards others matters because it is going to drive our actions towards them. Our attitude towards others matter, towards lost people, but also towards God. 
So you can't tell with 100% accuracy who's saved or not. You don't know who's lost and who's found. Only God knows. OGK. Only God knows. The Lord knows those who are his. Now Jesus said you're going to know them by their fruits. Okay. And that we would be identified by his fo- as his followers as by our love one for another. And that Jesus also said you should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So there are things that you can look for. But we don't know with 100% accuracy who's saved and who's lost. And you know what that tells me? It's open season for everyone to share the gospel with everyone, every day, everywhere. Because you don't know. We don't know who God has chosen. All we know is we are people living here on earth that need Jesus. And everyone else does too. It starts where our heart's at. It starts with our attitude. Chances are you're not a very productive member of the body of Christ or a very effective witness for Jesus if you're a grumbler, if you're a fault finder. See, you are either listening to Jesus or grumbling at him. You can't do both. And that issue is your heart attitude towards God and who he chooses to forgive. See, it's not our job to decide who gets to hear the gospel. There are people we won't share Christ with. There are people we will not share Christ with because of the way they look or the way they act or where they live. And those people would listen to Jesus. See, we think we'll get tainted or something. We think we might catch what they have. But Jesus didn't share in sinners' activity. He befriended them He encouraged them. He encouraged them to come to know God. He challenged them to repent. And he wants to use you in the process of reaching the lost. You see, the lost, those who are lost, they can't find their way. That's that's why they're lost. (laughs) They can't find their way back home. They don't even know where home is sometimes. They need someone to help them, not to hinder them, or not to turn them away. Think about the distinctions you make and the conclusions you come to based only on appearance, only on how someone looks. Oh, well, they're that kind of person or they're this kind of person. See, people need compassion, not judgment. All people are of great worth to God. Every person. And if you're a Christian, they should be to you as well. All people. It's not just people that look like us or talk like us or walk like us. Don't be guilty of profiling. Oh, he he wouldn't fit. Oh, she she wouldn't fit in. Would you have shared Christ with this guy right here? How about how about the how about the next one? Would you share would you share Christ with that guy right there? How about the next one? That is a fro. A hundred percent natural fro. That's me in high school. 1978 to 1980, several years before I became a Christian, would you have shared Christ with me? God doesn't choose on the basis of appearance, merit, or behavior. He chooses on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. That is the basis for our faith. That is the basis for our life in Christ. There's another thing about this. Our attitudes matter, but then you got to get to how you're, you're hang, what's happened when you're hanging out with people. Our interactions with people matter. 
Our interactions with others matter. Our attitudes towards those who don't know Jesus determines our interaction with them. The lost matter to God like lost sheep matter to shepherds. Like coins matter to women in biblical times. And like lost sons matter to parents all the time. But we worship a God who seeks and saves those who are lost, so we must be committed to reaching lost people with the gospel, not just by sharing it with them, but by living it before them every day. See, we have a divine mandate to engage our culture with the gospel, to engage our culture in a conversation. And this means building bridges, not barriers, like I said before, being culturally relevant, being doctrinally pure, by thinking kingdom of God, not Grace Church of Orange, Kingdom of God. And ask God where where he wants to use you. Uh, Open your eyes. Ask him to open your eyes. Realize that every conversation is a possible new brother or new sister in Christ. You never know who you might reach or turn away. So as we go out here every week, as we go out of these doors, we are being deployed as kingdom agents kingdom agents into the communities we live into our cities into the schools onto the playing fields into the marketplace to make a difference for Jesus so that people might come to know Christ see our job is to share and live the gospel it's God's job to do the saving but you've got to be willing to go out of your comfort zone go out of your bubble and engage people in conversations you see the Pharisees They were living in a fantasy world. And so are we if we cannot see people like God sees them. People who are made in God's image. People who are lost and separated due to their sin. Who need Jesus. Who substituted himself to pay for sin. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. To live and to share the gospel, you have to know the gospel. You have to know the gospel. See, the gospel is news of what God has done to reach us. It is not advice about what we need to do to reach up to God. God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could never achieve on our own. God is holy, mankind is sinful, and Jesus substituted himself to pay for sin. If you know Christ, he substituted himself in your place. So I'm going to share two things with you about the gospel. First of all, the gospel is good news of gracious acceptance. God's gracious acceptance that Jesus lived the life that we should live. That he also paid the penalty we owe for our rebelliousness, the rebellious life that we do live. And that he did this in our place. And that we are not reconciled to God by our efforts or our record as in every other religion, by the way. That you must earn your way to God. We are not reconciled to God through our efforts, through our record, but through his efforts and his record, through Jesus' finished work. And Christians who trust in Christ for their acceptance rather than their own moral character or commitment or performance, when they trust in Jesus and what he did, they are simultaneously sinful still, because you still sin, but also accepted in the beloved, renewed. You have a new heart. You have a new life. You're transformed by Jesus. And yeah, you're still going to sin, but Christ has covered your sins. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so the gospel is good news of gracious acceptance and that we find out that we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dreamt possible. 
yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. The second thing is this, the gospel is good news of changed lives. We know where we came from. You know Jesus, you know where you came from. Think about what Jesus did and how he changed your life. Paul says to the Colossians, your life is hid with Christ in God. Hid with Christ in God. In numerous places he says that we are now in him, in Christ. That's why I, I, I sign every email and every note with in Christ because it reminds me that I am in Christ and I am saved and secure and covered by the blood of Christ. What this means on the one hand is that God the Father accepts us in Christ and treats us as if we had done all the things that Christ has done. We get his righteousness. But it also means that Christ's life comes into us by the Spirit and shapes us into a new person. The gospel isn't just a truth about us that we affirm with our minds. It's also a reality that we must experience in our hearts and our souls every day. See, the gospel is not just, oh, I believed the gospel and now I'm a Christian and now I'm just going on my own, my own merry way. The gospel is, I got saved by the gospel, I live by the gospel, and I continue on by the gospel every single day. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. God's very wisdom. Foolishness to the world. The gospel is foolishness to the world. But it's the power of God to those who are being saved. It's Christ-centered. It's centered on the cross. It's centered on the resurrection. And if Christ isn't proclaimed, the gospel isn't proclaimed. If the death and resurrection of Jesus are not proclaimed, then Christ hasn't been proclaimed. The gospel's biblical. It's according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. If the saving events did not happen, we are still in our sins. We are most pitied among all people. The gospel message was entrusted to and transmitted by the apostles who were witnesses of these saving events, these real saving events. And the end result is that when the gospel is received and when it is believed, people are saved. Lives are changed forever. The lost are found. The gospel is the dynamic for all life change, all heart change and all social change. And change won't happen through trying harder, but only through encountering the radical grace of God, initially in coming to faith in Christ, but then every moment of every day thereafter. This, su- this summer on our trip, we also saw the cross on Highway 40 in Groom, Texas, biggest cross in the Western Hemisphere. At the cross, Jesus triumphed over sin, over death, over hell. And the name of Jesus is now the name above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name is matchless. He's the only way to heaven. The only way. See, I know people that I wish knew Jesus that don't. That don't know him. And they're on the way to a Christless eternity. 
they're on their way to eternity in hell unless they turn and believe in Christ. First hour we did this, we wrote the names of people we know that don't know Jesus that we're praying for. That they would come to know Jesus. But not just that, but that we would live the gospel before them and that we would share the gospel with them. We're going to sing two songs right now and I want to encourage you to come down here. There's paper, there's pens, there's nails and hammers just to write the names of some people you know that don't know Jesus.